I didn't go into the hospital with any preconceived notions about this stuff. I really actually had no appreciation for food. You know, I, I was definitely your typical <laughs> slightly manic entrepreneur who would rather not eat than take the time to deal with anything outside of my day's priorities. Welcome to the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show with your host, Jerry Saber. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show. I'm your host, Jerry Saver, and this is the podcast for you if you're looking for inspiration and ideas on how to get started or if you want to learn more about the skills to run a successful plant-based business. If you're new to the show, you can find us both on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. And if you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review so we can continue reaching more people with our content. Also, if this is your first time listening, I have something special for you on our website, theplantbasedentrepreneur.com. You know, our mission is to create more vegan businesses and help them grow. So if you head over there, theplantbasedentrepreneur.com, you can download our free inside report on the seven plant-based business ideas with the biggest potential for growth right now and learn what you can expect in each of these sectors. Now with that, let's get into this week's interview. My guest today is Matt Tolman. Matt actually goes by the handle VeganVC on Instagram, and he's got years of experience in both areas of the startup world, so both as a founder and as an investor. He's also been vegan for years, and it was his transition to a plant-based lifestyle that made him realize that this is an area where he could really make some serious impact with his skills. So I'm very happy for the opportunity to talk to him today about his work and his latest project. Matt, welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much, Jerry, and I appreciate you having me, and, and I very much appreciate what you're doing to inspire more vegan entrepreneurs and give tools to those individuals who are working in this space. In fact, I have a great compliment for you, which is uh, you actually stole my idea. This is the podcast that I would have created had you not done it. So I'm very jealous of you, but I think that is the ultimate compliment. You're doing something really fun. Thank you very much for that. I, I didn't know, but um, you know, you're, you're here right now and we are creating the, the tools for, for people to, to grow their vegan businesses because... I'm just one one half of the equation, and you as the guest are the very important second half of it. So, you know, let, let's do this. <laughs> that sounds great. Okay, just to, to kick it off, you know, and give it some background, um, who is Matt Dahlman in a nutshell? Like, where, where were you brought up and, and how? Well, I was born in Chicago, raised in Atlanta, but my teenage years were in Denver, so Colorado is really home. How was I brought up? That's a great question. My, my mom is a, a renaissance woman. She's an artist, a chef, a, a, just an extraordinary caregiver. My dad is a consummate businessman. Uh, he, he could honestly sell anything. I mean, you know the story about the salesman who could sell snow to a polar bear. I, I think my dad could sell a snow machine and probably get them to sign up for the maintenance plan. <laughs> yeah, so I learned pragmatism and, and persistence from him early on in the form of options trading and, and then later in, you know, the important lessons around finding mentors and, and building a network. And at the same time, that was complemented by learning creativity and passion from my mom, who really let me be me for my earliest years. And 
And when I say that, I, I really took that to an extreme, as with most things in my life, I dressed as a pirate for you know, a, a portion of my life. I mean, literally, I, I had a parrot on my shoulder, you know, the, the boots, everything. Um, <laughs> How long did that last? And when, when was I, I'm, I'm going to say a portion of my life. And I think I was around five to six years old. I don't know uh, specific timelines on that. But I'm just saying she was an incredible woman who allowed me to flourish in my own very strange way. <laughs> so that's that's my upbringing in a nutshell. I had a very different forces acting upon me as I was growing up. From my mom and my dad, that is, at least. Well, it sounds like it was the perfect combination to get you to the point where you are right now. Well, the pirate uh, dress-up stage doesn't really serve me today, but, I mean, honestly, it's the first time I think I've talked about it in my adult life, so uh, maybe it'll serve to at least get some laughs on this show. It's definitely the first time I've, I've heard of anything like that, but, <laughs> you know, I, I see kids going to school dressed up as superheroes so a pirate is not really that far out there fair fair thank you i, I appreciate you making me feel better at least <laughs> so um tell me something i've noticed on on your website you spent some time in in south america and and in colombia just since you know i spent a big part of my life down there as well i just wanted to hear a bit more about your your experience living there uh, sure. So my education is in social science, actually, which doesn't so much serve me day to day in, in my current roles. But that's what drew me down there. My, my first job was in the policy space. Um, you know, er, early on, I really focused on understanding how individuals could influence policy outcomes and, and really shift the trajectory of a city, a state, a, you know, the, the world. Um, through these different activities. And, and so I lived all over North and South America for different research projects. Um, the one that took me down into Colombia was researching the, the Fuerzas Armas Revolucionarias de Colombia, or, or FARC as an acronym, um, which is a leftist guerrilla group that's been terrorizing down there for you know, too many decades. Um, and I was there with a sort of digital revolutionary who used Facebook to coordinate a global protest um, it was in 31 capital cities on, on every inhabited continent. And the amazing part was that it was all accomplished in less than a month using Facebook. And I was just obsessed by that fact, you know, and, and this idea about how social technology and these new medias could change democracies, could change the relationship between government and people and collective action. And, and, and I still believe that our global you know, digital connectivity will continue to change the world politically and otherwise. I, I probably believe that more now than ever, uh, now that I'm plant-based and really connected to this vegan tribe. Uh, it, it's just been amazing to see how interconnected this community really is. And, and I think social communications will be a huge platform for our movement uh, in terms of creating greater change as we go forward. I totally agree on that, both since you shared that pirate story, I, I don't share this very often, but I, my background is in social sciences too, so I can completely relate and I understand very well how, how you're looking at that. Because when, when you have that background, you're kind of more, you, you know all the theory of communications and you can actually see what's, what's happening, how our perception of communications and sharing information is, is changing because of, of the new media that, that's available. Oh, yeah. I 
really encourage people. I, I was starting out in a dual degree path, uh, both business as well as political science and international relations. And I ended up dropping the business stuff because it just was boring to me, frankly. <laughs> and I, I really encourage folks to think about their undergraduate degree in broader terms and just what are these specific skill sets required to advance their career once they're out of school, because that's your, for many people, you know, the last formal education time in their lives. And so if you don't get that broad understanding that is provided by a lot of liberal arts degrees, you just never get it. And I'm always amazed by the shallowness of a lot of my very successful friends when it comes to history, when it comes to you know, the the government and political world that we live in, all these things that I, I studied and have an appreciation for and, and have a passion for still, but it's just totally outside of their, their worldview and their interest set, and they have absolutely no context for, for how we got here as, as a society. I kind of relate to that as well, to be honest, but since we're, we're talking business now and you said you dropped the business part, how did you get back into it and how did what you saw in in south america how did that influence your later business decisions well it was pretty quick actually <laughs> i just decided that i was wired to do more than just the the reading writing and, and thinking that goes into policy work um and i decided that you know i really wanted to focus on these these big changes that were happening in the world and and I wanted to try my hand at it. You know, this is uh, right around when Facebook was just beginning. So, you know, I was enamored by the idea of, of the next big startup. Luckily, I was smart enough to know, I think like you, that I needed to learn a little bit more before I, I was really able to, to play my hand in that space. So I immediately went into sort of the, the venture side of things um, early on, just helping a a group of business leaders um, at the time was actually in Texas to put together a venture capital fund that was uh, regionally oriented around uh, leveraging the creativity in Austin, the, the, the resources in Houston and the business savvy in, in Dallas. So creating its own little triangle down there. And then later on working in Chicago for uh, another a VC fund that I helped put together called Seven Wire Ventures, which had a very different mission than the last one. But very quickly coming back from Columbia, I, I started to, you know, kind of couldn't kick that interest and, and started transitioning my time as much as possible. What was that like? I mean, developing a, a venture capital fund? Like I said, the first one was very regionally focused, so a lot of researching and, frankly, just brainstorming about collaboration between corporate and governmental entities within that uh, very specific metro area, or those three metro areas, I should say. Not very interesting stuff, although the fund is still going today with a very unique model based on providing founding scientists and, and inventors with the resources and connections necessary to commercialize their innovations. The second one it was much more mission-driven. We wanted to address major social issue areas, being health, education, and energy. You know, those are the still the three critical problems we need to address as a society, and uh, you know, both in the U.S. and globally. In terms of of the development, you know, it's it's quite simple. It's it's all about trust 
And I'll be the first to admit that no one was trusting me with their money. As the managing director, I I was the signer on the bank accounts. I was the manager of the LLC. I was the face of the organization in the sense that I was fishing for new deals and meeting investors and entrepreneurs, trading pitch decks with other collaborative shops. In other words, I, I ran the operations, but fundamentally I worked for the partners, you know, the, the folks who were putting in the majority of the money and uh, the rest of the capital was trusting those guys to make smart decisions on, on where to, to deploy our resources. So I, I should also clarify just in, in terms of calling it a VC fund, at least uh, with regards to Seven Wire, we really bridged the gap between a traditional funds activity and, and more of an incubator and an accelerator. We were very hands-on and, and created a number of businesses ourselves, which is where I really started understanding the role of a founder and, and how to get a startup off the ground. You know, I was extraordinarily fortunate to be able to play so many varied roles and, and with a ton of responsibility very early on in my career. Since, since you came into it from, from an investor um perspective what insights do you gain that perhaps you know regular startup founders don't even consider when when they're starting (laughs) um you know i've been asked that question a lot so i've got kind of a dense answer (laughs) which i've given before and and there's there's three components to it you know first is know your numbers the second is know which numbers matter and the third is know what really matters. The first, know your numbers, is there's nothing that investors hate more than ambiguity uh, or, or worse, ignorance when it comes to their money. You need to know your sales projections and your profit margins, your inventory, your pipeline, your customer churn rate, and your conversion rate for every step in the sales funnel. And especially if you're asking people to invest money in your business, then you really need to know those numbers. And the more specific and crisp you are in presenting those numbers, the more confidence you'll inspire. And it's just amazing to me how many entrepreneurs who come in with this, you know, uh, they're clearly brilliant. They have a great idea. You know, they might not know much about business, but you can forgive somebody for that. That's why you hire people who have experience. But at the end of the day, they have no idea any of those really critical metrics that I just rambled off. And that is just kind of a non-starter with so many savvy investors. Um, and, and that's not to say that entrepreneurs should dedicate significant amounts of time to memorizing facts about their business. Perhaps you'll, you'll need to in order to perform at an investor pitch when you're raising capital. But my point really is, is that you should engage deeply with these numbers on a daily basis so you really know them and you know the nuance around them and then you don't have to cram and memorize when you go out to talk to investors you actually know the business really well so if if i can just dig a little deeper here because if we're talking numbers you know overall so it's definitely not just money but for a business that's in the pre-revenue phase what are those numbers for instance because obviously you can't talk about roi or projected revenues if you don't have any at all? True. That's a great question, Jerry. And that is why I uh, have the second part to that answer, right? Um, Know which numbers matter. Because as you point out, not all metrics are equally important to every business. You know, particularly a pre-revenue business, uh, you're going to have different 
measures of growth and, and measures of success than you would for you know a, a more established firm. So you need to know what those key levers are in your business. You know what are leading indicators and what are the metrics that correlate to outcomes that indicate success or failure in terms of reaching your goals, which may not have anything to do with financial numbers. You know, I mean, for instance, in our education technology business, in addition to the metrics that I mentioned before, you know, uh, like new leads at the top of the sales funnel, bookings, revenue collected in a given month, some of the most important numbers related to student engagement. You know, that's how we measured our own accomplishment of the mission, which was to fundamentally change education in, in K through 12 schools. So we measured students on the platform each day. We measured how meaningful that activity was in all these different ways. But we also measured, you know, the same sort of metrics for teachers and administrators because ultimately, you know, that was the leading indicator of how much the platform was going to be used in the classroom. If, you didn't get engagement from teachers and administrators, you weren't going to get that engagement from them when it really mattered, when, when they were actually teaching and, and learning was happening in the classroom. So, you know, I, I didn't mention inventory. For our business, we did sell hardware, but that was a very minor part of our business. So I never had to think about inventory management, you know, or, or churn and different elements that might be really critical for a cosmetics business, right? Um, what I obsessed about was the student engagement, you know, plus I, I knew my COO would, would watch the, the inventory stuff anyway, but to your point for a pre-revenue business or for any sort of business, it's just really critical to have that sort of nuanced understanding of what really matters to you and your business. And that brings us to the third point, which is what really, really matters. This is a little bit superficial, but because you asked about from an investor standpoint, you get a lot of entrepreneurs who want to buy ping pong tables right after raising capital. Um, I was one of them. I, I did that, actually. Um, if you want to impress your investors and you want to prime them to reinvest in the next round, yeah, you know, know what really matters for your startup to succeed and, and invest there. You know, it's, it's probably not beanbag chairs and you know, company outings for team bonding, you know, th those are expensive and you should buy those. Those are important, um, but you should do that with the profits that you're winning in the marketplace. You know, don't spend investors' money on that stuff. Um, and obviously you can broaden that tip, you know, <laughs> past the, the spend wisely advice. You, you need to know what really matters. Um, you know, I personally think it always starts with the team and, and then product is certainly high up there. But Every entrepreneur has their own opinion of what's most critical and, and it changes at every different stage of a company. But specifically with regards to uh, how you deal with investors and, you know, it often therefore means investors money, you know, you should think very carefully about what you're spending on, especially early on after a raise. So if, if we put this into a practical sort of advice for a company that's pre-revenue and is looking to raise, say, seed or, or angel funding, what are the most important metrics and what is it that really matters? What, what would you like to see or hear from a company like that to, to pick your interest as an investor? <laughs> it's so funny because you've sort of caught me in a lie. Um, after I spent all this time uh, talking about the numbers, 
if you're talking about uh, you know seed stage pre-revenue companies, the numbers don't matter as much. Really, all I look at is the team and probably secondly, the idea. But as you know, the history of incredible pivots, uh, an amazing team can totally wrap up a company and start a new one and have a massive success before a lot of other teams even get off the ground, right? So first and foremost, obviously, you have to consider the product market fit, the opportunity within that market space. And, and therefore, you're looking at the idea. But ultimately, you know, I, I think for me, you, you can just tell when an entrepreneur has that sort of crazy look in their eyes and, and they know their stuff and, and they're going to do it. You just have to help them or give them the resources or, or try to confine their energy, you know, and, and direct it in some way. Um, so I, I actually think the team is the most important. So Since you asked for practical advice, I'd say for any startup founder, spend as much time as you can on the team, bringing in the people with the right expertise, the right credentials, the right experiences, um, the right skill sets, Uh, you know, fill out a a managerial team, an executive team that that really is uh, incredible. And I think that's one of the most impressive things that you can do in terms of of getting an investor to see that you you really know your stuff. Mm-hmm. From from your background in in Seven Wire, for instance, what kind of companies did you most enjoy working with? That's a tough question, only because by virtue of the role, there was a very specific company profile that would even be considered for venture investment. You know, that's primarily fast growth, web or, or technology enabled business. Um, so that kind of narrows, you know, the the scope. Um, but within that group, I'd say my clear preference was working with companies that are mission-driven, seeking to make the world a better place um, to solve an important problem, not just a common money-making problem, but something that actually pushes us as a society forward. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, a B Corp or social entrepreneurship, quote-unquote. I just don't think the world needs more designer shoes or you know, clever T-shirts. I'm perfectly fine with my untucked button-down shirt that, you know, isn't perfectly the the length that it's supposed to be. I think if, if an entrepreneur is going to spend the time and, and the resources to create something, it should be to solve a meaningful problem. That's a piece of gold right there, I would say. And I think that's a great point to, to slowly transition to, to the vegan part of your work in your life. So um, how did you get into it, actually? Well, um, that's a bit of a story. <laughs> you know, I actually left my uh, operational role in the education technology business and within a week found myself in a hospital with my grandfather. He went in for a routine surgery. And keep in mind, he was a totally healthy 86-year-old. He'd just gotten back from two weeks in Europe with his wife. And so... I planned on only being there for a day just to support my grandmother during the surgery. But I actually ended up staying for a whole month. I, I literally slept in two chairs pushed together. And at the end of the month, he passed away. And if that experience wasn't life-changing enough, on his death certificate, it says malnutrition. And that was just devastating to me because during that whole month, 
I had been researching health, longevity, plant-based nutrition, and I had really seen, you know, <laughs> intimately some of the pitfalls of modern medicine um, and just how badly we should all be trying to stay out of the hospital at all costs. And so the power of preventative medicine ultimately, uh, you know, was the lasting lesson there. And the reason that I had an interest in plant-based nutrition was my uncle actually previously had battled cancer with a raw whole foods vegan diet. I probably don't need to explain to your audience who already knows about the healing power of, of plants, but he was very successful in, in doing that, actually was able to reverse the, the cancer growth. And so I, I didn't go into the hospital with any preconceived notions about this stuff. I really actually had no appreciation for food. You know, I, I was definitely your typical <laughs> slightly manic entrepreneur who would rather not eat than take the time to deal with anything outside of my day's priorities. But when I came out of that hospital, it was just crystal clear because I could juxtapose this experience where, you know, my uncle in eating a, a raw whole foods vegan diet was able to cure cancer. And then my grandfather, who was unable to eat any sort of whole foods by virtue of this surgery, you know, within a month deteriorated quite rapidly and passed away from malnutrition. So my whole worldview was just blown to pieces. And I ended up selling our, our condo in Chicago and moving back to Denver because I just decided that family was the most important thing and ended up getting a a house with a little plot of land and, and developing our own little organic garden and uh, spent about two years researching full time. Just, you know, I consumed nearly 200 books. I think I'm over that now. Um, and probably reviewed twice as many peer-reviewed articles on these topics. And at the end of it, I had amassed, you know, such a, a trove of information, I ended up putting it into a book, which we can talk about later if it's of interest, but I, I won't spend too much time on it. Um, and, and ultimately, that's how I really drove into this lifestyle. Very quickly, and in, in, while still in the hospital, I, I remember calling my wife and saying, stop eating everything. I'm, I'm pretty sure lettuce <laughs> is okay. But, you know, we're going to have like a black and white list policy. Everything has been blacklisted at this point. We will selectively move foods back on to the approved list at a later date once I do a little bit more research. So, um, yeah, ultimately, the only things that we end up eating are plants. So that's how I ended up here. How did your wife take that? She's an extraordinarily patient woman. <laughs> And and believe it or not, if that was the craziest thing I ever said to my wife, um, well, let me just say it, it's not. So <laughs> I'm very, very fortunate to have her. How long did it take for that to turn into a business interest as well? Because now you've spent two years just researching and working on your garden, I'm, I'm assuming. And when when did you realize that you could actually take the skills that, that you had from before and, and apply them to this area too? Just for to clarify, in that two years, I was also renovating a house. I have a passion for, for building furniture I, just as a hobby. Um, and so I figured, you know, a house is just kind of like a large piece of furniture. So why wouldn't I be able to do that too? Um, 
you know, it was, it was my attempt to go for the slower life. I, I think one of the lessons that I came out of the hospital with is that, you know, maybe this, uh, this entrepreneurial life that, you know, move fast and maybe that wasn't the way to go. Um, as it turns out, I was wrong. That's, uh, I'm just not wired for a slower life. So to answer your question though, when did this become a business interest? I, I'm not really good at separating my personal life and my business activities. You know, I'm, I'm a really passionate person and I don't think that I'd be happy working on something that didn't totally consume me. So as soon as I discovered the benefits of plant-based living, I, I knew that I wanted to spend my time spreading this knowledge and, and to help people come to the same conclusion. Um, for me, a, a key way to make that happen is, is the economic engine of business that is allowing market forces to fuel that growth and reach, you know, the, more value that I can bring, the more people buying <laughs> that value, it translates to more capacity for me to bring that value and, and to spread that message to a larger audience. So I've always kind of assumed that um, I would leverage this this knowledge um, and be engaged in this community in a business capacity. What specifically was it that that you were looking for when when you realized that? Did you have an idea of what what sort of businesses you would like to get involved with? I mean, plant-based businesses, of course. Uh, so I'm involved in a couple, but broadly speaking, you know, I think there's a, a huge amount of opportunity in this space. You know, everything from education in terms of online courses and other modalities to uh, increasing engagement. You know, and, and I'm thinking about apps and other coaching services that that make the transition to a plant-based lifestyle easier and, and more sustainable for people. Uh, I also think outreach would be a, another area. You know, we have an incredible community, like mentioned before, that is just dedicated beyond belief and, and frankly obsessed in the best kind of way. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to bring apps and services to the tribe that helps strengthen vegan outreach, make it more meaningful and effective, you know, allow us to act as, as a collective. And of course, I'm, I'm leaving out, you know, the low hanging fruit, which is plant-based food products and, and other fortified foods. So there's uh, endless opportunity in this space. You know, since you mentioned the, the vegan community, I just have to, to ask about the, the non-vegan community, because obviously those are the people that, that we seriously need to consider if we want to increase the percentage of the population that is plant-based. So how do we reach those? It's a great question, and I wish I had an answer for you. I think about that probably most of all, frankly. Um, you know, I, I have members of my own family that, that have not yet made the transition. So I'm constantly trying to figure out, you know, is it about replicating the, the pleasure um, that so many people associate with food would that solve it you know and i'm not sure is it more education you know do people need to know about the atrocities of industrial scale animal agriculture and kind of a a fear-based or maybe not fear but um you know tragedy-based um evangelism and i'm not sure about that either i think it turns off a lot of people unfortunately because it, it really is just atrocious so, like I said, I, I don't have a good answer for you on that one. Of all questions, it's it's probably the one that I spend most of my time thinking about. Yeah, that's 
kind of like you know when when you think of it it's kind of like the philosopher's stone the turning lead into into gold if if you knew the exact lever that you need <laughs> to pull to convert like half the populations into vegan overnight that would be a total win but maybe it doesn't even exist maybe because you said that yeah shock activism or showing the atrocities i think for some people it it works and then on the other hand you have people that react in the exact opposite way to it and are just repulsed by by the vegans who are trying to spread their message like that totally agree with you and uh, you know as you were speaking i i thought of probably a better answer which i wish i had said and, and that is leading by example I hate to say it, but, you know, being the change you wish to see in the world. But I don't mean that, you know, in the kind of warm and fuzzy way that it sounds. I, I actually mean, you know, if we have a community of thriving, vibrant vegans, you know, who just literally glow from the inside out, that ultimately is going to win out in the long game. Um, I'm just convinced of it, you know, both in in the sense that I think on an interpersonal level, that is just so much more compelling than any kind of shock therapy. You know, pictures of dead animals just only gets you so far. But if you're happier, if your skin is clearer, if you have more energy, if you, if you just are that much happier, people notice that, you know, and, and it's really hard not to correlate that kind of attitude and, and existence with, you know, the way you live and what you eat on a daily basis. So, I really do think that's, you know, on a one-to-one one -one basis is going to make a huge dent. But I also think that on a population-wide basis, I've seen the numbers, you know. Um, there is just so many correlations, huge numbers of people eat um, and what they eat and how their health outcomes then depend on those day-to-day -day decisions. And I think if we have millions of plant-based people who are over time doing this better and better and, you know, supplementing as they may need, you know, adding in the exercise and meditation and other components and just really thriving, that ultimately can't be ignored by governments that are struggling to contain healthcare costs. You know, when, when the evidence, when the data indicates this is truly the way that we need to live, um, I think ultimately then you get subsidies, programs changing, you get a lot of these different um, governmental forces, for lack of a better word, uh, to start kind of turning markets and, and you know, swaying hearts and minds in, in a much more large scale way that, that even, you know, the most profitable business really can't do on the same scale. Yeah. And man, I, I really want to track back to, to this topic, but now let's just stay with with business for now is there anything in specific that you're doing right now because i said in the intro we'll be covering your your latest project and i know you've got something happening right now so um I, i'd love to hear about that that's that's true so um i've actually partnered with matt frazier uh the no meat athlete on to bring a product to market um i'm, I'm really excited about the product uh because I think it fills an important gap in the marketplace and, and a, a critical need for plant-based people. Um, I'm actually even more excited about the company because of, of what we have planned after this product. And, and probably I'm, I'm most excited about the team. Um, so 
I suppose if I if I got to give you a debrief, that's where I want to spend most of the time. But I'll give you the thirty second pitch about the product. Um, you know, as we all know, every diet is susceptible to deficiencies of some kind. You know, if you only eat potatoes, you're you're getting a particular nutrient profile, and you're therefore susceptible to being lacking in certain other nutrients. You know, same goes for the standard American diet. You know, you you certainly are going to be nutrient deficient in in some other ways. Vegans have a very specific one. Uh, I'm sure your audience is well aware of just the the flood of nutrients you get from raw, unprocessed plants, both in terms of macro and micro and all the phytochemicals and everything else. But there are a couple that may either be missing or just may be very difficult to absorb from plant sources. You know, take DHA and EPA, the the omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, They come from microalgae. You know, so fish eat those seaweed and then deposit DHA and EPA in their fatty tissues. That's why a lot of uh, people take fish oil supplements for their heart or their brain. But if you're vegan, you're not getting that. And particularly if you live in the West, you're not eating tons of seaweed. Uh, You know, that's not a criticism of a plant-based diet. That's just a reality of how we eat. So what we did is, is really put a lot of time into the research and and figured out there are these kind of really essential micronutrients that, like I said, are either not existent in plant sources or or just very hard to absorb from your typical, even diverse plant-based diet, especially in the West. There's a little bit of of, uh, discrepancy when it comes to Asian diets because they do eat a lot of fermented soybeans, for instance, which have a very unique nutritional profile or or seaweed. Um, But really thinking about the vast majority of the vegan population and and how do we ensure that they're getting these absolutely critical nutrients. And again, going back to that long game that I'm playing, I want to ensure that, you know, we're strengthening the vegan community one plant-based person at a time. That's the company's mission. And so this first product is really designed to sort of fill that that nutritional gap. Just seemed like a no-brainer, like I said. So what what is it? Is it like a supplement in pill form, powder, liquid, snack? I'm really glad you asked that. Um, and I'm glad you used that, that verbiage because we call it a complement, not a supplement. Uh, it's a complement because it fills those gaps. Like I said, it, it, it complements the nutrients that you get in a plant-based diet. A supplement would be adding nutrients that you're already getting abundantly through plants. So we see no reason for that. We always want to encourage people to eat their nutrients in whole plant form. So there's no reason to put extra C or extra you know, A or extra... E in your in, in supplement form, instead complement that nutrient profile with our product complement, and thereby make sure to you know round out the the whole nutrient profile that you need on a daily basis. Nice. So h- how is it called? I mean, people are probably wondering about that, and when when's it coming out, and where they can get it. So the company is called Light Drop. Um, L-I-G-H-T-D-R-O-P so you can go to lightdrop.org and uh, learn all about our, our mission and the story behind the product and uh, 
we are currently, as of this recording, we, we've just finished a soft launch, which um, I'm, I'm very excited to say went really well. Um, there's no way of knowing how those things go, and I'd be the first to say you know, it's, it's good to experiment with the new business and, and then have to iterate to make sure you've got that product market fit. I'm, like I said, really excited to say that it looks like we're on to something here because there's uh, quite a good response with the uh, initial release. We're launching to a, a broader group, about 150,000 people tomorrow. So by the time this episode airs, um, I will either be absolutely ecstatic um, or totally retooling, and you and I are going to have to re- re-record this part of the podcast. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, but, I'm thinking ecstatic is probably the more possible outcome here. I, I hope so. But like I said, I'm, I, I just let the data dictate. So I'm optimistic, certainly. Um, but we're going to see what happens. And, uh, and so your audience is probably going to be one of the first uh, public audiences that hears this message and, and has the opportunity to go to lightdrops.org to, uh, to take a look at what we're doing. Nice. So um, c- can you share a bit about your, um, your future plans for this company as well? Because you, you said you're really excited about those two. Yeah. Um, well, I should say no. <laughs> uh, we're going to keep those under wraps, but I will tell you about uh, the team that we've put together. Uh, I mentioned I partnered with Matt Frazier of nomeatathlete.com to, to bring this to market. Um, for anyone who knows or follows Matt's blog uh, or podcast, uh, he's just one of the most thoughtful and, and experienced leaders in the plant-based movement. Uh, he's been working to spread this gospel for nearly a decade. He's interviewed everyone and spoken at you know, countless events. And I really think that, you know, along with Rich Roll, he's played a just pivotal role in building the, the plant-based athlete community. Um, and so I, I always had a tremendous respect for his work and, and really benefited from his insight. So when I began taking my first steps to, into the plant-based business world, he was the first person I called. And we just hit it off from the start. I, I really have fun working with him, and and we balance each other out well. Uh, he's a super smart, obnoxiously analytical and, and methodical guy, which is an amazing talent and means he never misses a thing. And and that's an awesome partner for me because those would not be my strong suits. I never let the details get in the way of a good vision, you know? Um, and don't get me wrong, I, I enjoy nuance and, and building spreadsheets and very deep dives into esoteric science, but I'm far more disruptive than I am methodical. And and I don't mean that in the cool way that you hear it in Silicon Valley. I mean, I, my wife can attest, I have lists and ideas on, on note cards and small scraps of paper and notebooks, chalkboards, emails. I mean, at, at best, it's organized chaos. Most of the time, it, it's just chaos. So so Matt really is like the, the perfect compliment to me, pun somewhat intended. <laughs> in, in any event, in collaborating, we realize there's a slew of products and services that, um, for which we see a need. So we founded this company, Lightdrop, that, like I said, has uh, the mission of strengthening the plant-based movement by strengthening one plant-based person at a time. I won't say anything more about the the future products and services that that we have planned, but I have to mention from early on, we we started engaging a woman by the name of Pamela Ferguson, um, 
who is one of, if not the smartest people uh, when it comes to plant-based nutrition. She's a registered dietitian, but also has a PhD in nutrition. What I really love about her contribution as a, a thinker on the team is that she's naturally a huge skeptic of supplementation. Um, so here's a, an important piece of advice for your audience thinking about how to build a team in their startup. Um, getting that sort of antagonistic perspective on your team creates this kind of productive tension um, that I think is just so healthy for a team dynamic. I mean, we just always end up with stronger decisions and a better rationale for our strategy. Um, and and so, so that's why I think she's a critical player on our team. On a personal note, you know, I, I just I fell in love with her style after listening to a podcast between her and Matt Fraser, I was just blown away by everything from her, her parenting strategies, which are, are really quite something to, you know, her just practical plant-based tips, uh, to her background, starting with severe malnutrition and, and HIV in, in Malawi. You know, she's the kind of entrepreneurial sort that, you know, worked six jobs to pay her way f- through a master's program. So, you know, like I said, she's she's quite defined and, and Matt and I are really privileged to work with her and benefit from her expertise. And I, I just, you know, can't say enough positive things about her or Matt for that matter. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we'll be linking to, to that episode in the show notes for, for anyone who, who wants to listen in because it definitely sounds like, like a very interesting both episode and person. Yeah, it is. And uh, and I, I would do that, especially for anyone who has kids and is interested in, in figuring out strategies to get their children to eat more plants or, or maybe even become plant-based. Um, she really has just, just an unbelievable sort of um, a practical, but also just uh, an exceptionally unique perspective on that that I think uh, many people will benefit from. See now, now that you're mentioning this, and that that's probably one of the other areas that that's kind of tricky and and challenging. How do we get kids to to embrace plant-based diets? Because obviously, it's always the the parents who are going to be influencing their decisions. So, good question. Yeah, <laughs> if we're talking parenting, how how do we go after that? Honestly, you know, I'm going to have to encourage Matt and Pamela to do a podcast just on this because Matt, too, you know, and and I'm not just saying this because they're my two colleagues, but he also has just an amazing tact when it comes to that stuff. Uh, I'll just mention briefly, and hopefully I'm not stepping out of bounds by talking about his son, but, you know, uh, his son, who I believe is 10, meditates every morning. Him and his daughter are both plant-based and, you know, particularly in comparison to a lot of children that I've seen eat, it, it is just astounding to see the kind of discipline and, you know, just sort of pure joy these kids have eating like carrots, you know, and it's like, I, I can't get my nephews to eat something that's not covered in cheese, let alone, you know, sugar. <laughs> and these kids are just like, so excited about eating raw plants. And, how Matt got there, um, you know, I, I'll let him speak to. But yes, to your point, I think, you know, figuring out how do we get the next generation is definitely another piece of that puzzle that I, I spoke to before about, you know, sort of the 
the long game in terms of uh, the plant-based movement winning out. So if we're talking all kinds of possibilities, if you weren't involved with Lightdrop right now, what would you be doing? Oof, that's a that's a terribly difficult hypothetical to answer <laughs> because despite what I said about not being methodical, I, I do at least have a plan. So this product, like I said, was just sort of a no-brainer that needed to exist, and, and that was always a, a key step in my, my plan. That said, I will share with you what I'm, what I'm planning on next, or, or really I should say concurrently, because I, I plan on being focused on my work with Lightdrop indefinitely right now. Um, I have that book coming out later this year, which I mentioned earlier. And then I have broader ambitions, which I, I think Matt and Pamela uh, will probably be involved in as well in terms of strengthening the plant-based movement. And I'm starting to lay the foundation there, but I really encapsulate those activities under the broad goal of 30 by 30. And what that is is 30% of the population being plant-based by 2030. Um, so it's it's ambitious, but I think you know if you look at the trends lines and the way things are going, particularly in terms of the sorts of products and and services that are coming to market, um, but also all of the different factors that are driving more and more people to go plant based every year, I do think that that thirty percent is achievable by by twenty thirty. So we're talking thirty percent of the U.S. population, the world population. I mean, world population would be nice, but... I'm going to say 30 by 30 right now. <laughs> <laughs> and truthfully, I think that that's a hedge in both directions, because I actually think that the U.S. population would be harder than the global population, because you have so many nations that are already practically plant-based. You know, I mean, just look at India, obviously... They, they do some cheeses, but it's a very different dynamic. Same with a lot of rural China, you know, there's 2 billion people right there. Then if you look at Africa, I mean, as you and I both know, most people are not indulging in the sort of meat and dairy rich diets that we enjoy in, in the West. So um, I actually think if we said globally, that would be a very interesting metric. But just to clarify, you know, my, my goal is not to see 30% become plant-based in order to to have more vegans on the planet, right? The 30%, this, this accomplishment really serves a bigger picture, a bigger purpose. Um, and that is, I think it's the only way to really meaningfully uh, make a dent in chronic disease. And when you look at the sort of challenges that we face as a country and, and as a global society, you know, so many of them relate to healthcare costs. And not to mention, you know, you have the debilitation, you know, the chronic pain, the just horrendous situations related to families that have a sick individual in them, a chronically sick individual. Um, I mean, that's just a heart-rending situation. Um, all of those things can be solved with a plant-based diet. So attaining this 30 by 30 metric is, is really just sort of the, the method towards that broader end goal. Yeah, I have to expand here because I don't think it's just the health that that gets greatly improved. I, I think it's, well, I know it's also the environment, but it's also the food security, the ability to provide food for for the entire world 
is is improved probably by you know a factor of five or ten if, if you increase the the percentage of, of vegans on the planet oh absolutely as as many of us who have have done reading and thinking uh, about these topics have figured out you know th there's just not enough arable land there's not enough water to feed you know a seven billion um person population let alone 10 billion which is projected by 2050 on industrial scale animal agriculture you know it's just not possible and that's why i, I love seeing plant-based products come to market i think they really you know, vegan junk food really does aid in the transition to eating more plants. Um, and so I, I really hesitate to disparage any sort of activities like that. But at the same time, you know, the, like this cultured meat phenomenon, I, I don't know how much that's going to help us because I really don't know what the long-term health outcomes are associated with just replacing meat and other animal products with these sort of newfangled, innovative foods, right? Um, at the end of the day, the message needs to always come back to, look, you know, whole plants works. You know, it works from a health standpoint. It works from a cultivation and agricultural standpoint. It works from a water sustainability standpoint. You know, and it just so happens to be an accessible way today that we can feed, you know, the billions of individuals who are going hungry, you know, all of the money and time that we're putting into these kind of, for lack of a better word, vegan comfort food seem to be a bit of a distraction to me. But again, I recognize that, you know, they are an important factor in helping people to make that transition. So in that way, you know, I can't get too upset about them. Yeah, yeah, I totally understand that. I mean, I am a huge fan of vegan fast food in exactly the same way that you described right now is a stepping stone it's definitely not something that would be in my fridge or on my menu daily although my wife would probably attest to the fact that i i can never resist a, a new vegan hamburger joint if we happen to pass it um but it's it's a one-time thing you know i i really like experiencing what what people are doing what companies are doing with these products but um they definitely have a place in in bringing a plant-based lifestyle closer to to the majority of the population. I totally agree with you. You know, in fact, the the plant-based veggie burger is probably my 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 go-to guilty pleasure. But um, that might be changing. Unfortunately, I, I went gluten-free as well. Um, we figured out my my wife has an allergy to gluten after making this transition. So without the bun, the uh, the veggie burger has sort of lost its appeal. So unfortunately, but I will say this: going gluten free was harder than going going vegan. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of tricky. I mean, my my wife is kind of sensitive to it as well, and it it is hard. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's it's. <laughs> I mean, it's soy sauce, ketchup, you name it. It's all it's all got gluten. But you don't realize it until until you have to start looking for it. Just so we're not straying too too far into nutritional waters here. Um, we were talking about the thirty by thirty project. What kind of mix do you need to 
to make that happen? Well, I, I think that there are a few different components. I, I generally categorize my thinking in this area as uh, you have a political dimension, and, and that relates to the, the policies and the business environment uh, in which we all operate. And that comes from the government, of course. You know, subsidies are probably the single greatest factor that I, that I see really stifling the plant-based movement, you know. The reason why an organic tomato is three times the cost of a pound of beef is that you pay for the pound of beef in your tax dollars, not at the grocery store. So we're never going to be able to compete on an equal playing field so long as you've got you know, um, <laughs> people who can't quite wrap their head around that fact. Um, so I, I think we have to operate in the political sphere, and that's why I'm really excited to see Things like you know the the Good Foods Institute and the Plant Based Foods Association, these uh, what are effectively lobby groups. But um, you know, uh, lobby groups are terrible unless, of course, they're lobbying for plant based foods. Which in that case, I'm I'm all right with them. <laughs> so so I think you have the political side. I think you have the economic side. Um, like I said, being that engine, you know, putting more and more plant-based products, more vegan comfort food, despite what I said, you know, that's a good thing. If we can get people to eat more plants, even if they don't know their plants, which is, you know, my favorite tactic when it comes to my nephews, um, Ooh, you know, that, that's that, a great thing. That, that's sneaky, but I, I like it. I, I, <laughs> I like that. I, I've been guilty of that in the past too. Yeah. I just think that you have to, right? Unfortunately, there's such a a stigma many times with vegan food. I mean, I was just yesterday in Hawaii. We, of course, found a vegan restaurant and picked up these awesome sandwiches on gluten-free bread. And uh, I opened it up at the airport and um, this woman said, that looks really good. And I said, it's vegan. And she goes, oh, it doesn't look vegan. I was going to say it looks so yummy, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I was thinking to myself like, well, God, that just is a perfect example of the kind of preconceived notion with which we all deal with food right and we have to be able to bridge that gap and and have a conversation that isn't just kind of one is raw plants you know kind of like a pile of spinach and the other is like the best hamburger you've ever seen there is this this huge middle ground and people can't see that because they get lost in this like term vegan um in any event so yeah, I, I do a lot of sneaking around when it comes to foods and, and my nephews, but I, I don't think that's the worst thing. Um, so like I said, you have this commercial side that I think we have to operate on in addition to the political, which goes back to that point I mentioned about using the economic engine of, of business to really drive change um, a lot faster than and we can just with you know, sharing posts uh, about you know, animal agriculture atrocities. Um, that said, I think the third element is cultural. I think it does relate to education and also advocacy. Ultimately, you know, my first, uh, brush with veganism was actually many years before I made the transition. And, and that was a woman who is totally motivated by, uh, the animal factor as opposed to the health and, and the environmental motivation. Um, and, I think convinced me to stop eating meat. I, I don't quite remember what happened there, but I do know that many years before going vegan, I just sort of lost the taste for 
eating meat. And I think it was probably because of some of the things that she shared with me and just making the connection in my mind between what I was eating. So I do think that there is a huge benefit to advocacy, the kind of advocacy and, and how that plays out, I don't know. But we absolutely have to act on this this cultural side. Um, and I think documentaries are probably the best example of that. I can't tell you how many vegans I've spoken to. And, and I always ask, you know, why did you change? What was the factor? You know, trying to really understand this um, transformation process so that I can reverse engineer it and figure out how to scale it to more people. And it's always amazing how many people go back to, you know, I, I saw Cowspiracy or I saw Food Matters or I saw Forks Over Knives and that's what did it for him. So that I think is something that we have to keep in mind. You know, the books are great, but the power of sight, sound and motion is is something substantial. Yeah, and I think if I just um, if I look back at all of the the guests that have been on my podcast and just thinking of the show notes, I think Cowspiracy is probably in the lead right now. But I would say that at least one in three, if not, you know, two, two out of five people would say that it, it was a documentary that that set them on this path. You know, I have to I have to admit something just because we were talking about it. I've seen so many documentaries. I don't even remember how if I've seen Caspiracy. I think they've all blended together. But honestly, I've been meaning to go back and rewatch that one just to make sure I've seen it because it comes up in so many conversations and I have this feeling in the back of my mind that says I, I might have missed that one. Did, did you see the new one that they put out? Um, the makers of Cowspiracy, What the Health? What, what the Health, yeah. I haven't yet, actually. You can do a marathon of both. I mean, they, they have a kind of similar narrative, the kind of similar approach to, to exploring, but they're obviously, they're targeting different areas of, of veganism or the effect that it has on on the society and our people no they're, they're great i usually just go straight into finding somebody who's parsed all of the uh little sound bites for specific clinical studies or, or or different investigations and then go go read the journal article abstract and get the data and then throw it into my book so i've, I've got a very weird way of watching documentaries i, I don't even enjoy them anymore frankly <laughs> but before I totally lose your audience, we should probably move off this subject because I, I don't think I'm winning points here. <laughs> so um, the the book, if we want to wrap this up, it's coming out in 2017. Do you have a title for it yet? Later this year, yes, and not an official title, uh, but it, I, I'm, I'm playing around with the idea of, of calling it 30 by 30 because ultimately it, it does encapsulate my story and the kind of transformation that, that I experienced and, and that we saw, we being my wife and I, um, and we've done, you know, monthly blood tests, you know, for the last year and a half, just to kind of document as we really refined our approach, you know, for the first probably year and a half of doing this, it was a lot more vegan comfort food, but since really kind of honing in on, on our own version of a plant-based diet and, and like I said figuring out her gluten intolerance or, or really allergy doing these blood tests and and sort of seeing these metrics change has just been incredibly eye-opening so it encapsulates all that stuff but also draws out these 
these bigger themes that, um, you know, like I say, I, I think a, a tipping point is fast approaching, you know, between the medical researchers and, and the clinicians that are just amassed this tremendous amount of evidence um, in terms of the, the nutritional power and, and the capability for plants to reverse chronic diseases. But at the same time, you know, all the compelling data on on why the plant-based diet is the most environmentally friendly. And then thirdly, you know, the other component we touched on, the just awareness uh, of the atrocities inherent to industrial scale animal agriculture. Um, so encapsulating all those things and, and sort of putting a, a bit of a wrapper on my theory that by 3030, I, I do think we will see um, th- this sort of change. And and I also believe that because, you know, I, I have, I mean, I, I'm generally in four or five cities a week. Um, and, you know, every size of city in the U.S., many in Latin America that I've visited just in the last six months, you know, they have some of the best plant-based food in the most unexpected places. I mean, in the Mexico City airport, there's a vegan restaurant, you know, in, in Huntsville, Alabama, one of the best gluten-free vegan burgers i've ever had it's on my instagram page i literally ate two in one sitting and that's in huntsville alabama you know i mean the south is the capital of barbecue right i mean it's just it's really amazing just in the three four years that we've been focused on this um seeing the kind of proliferation um both in terms of documentaries and and other vegan restaurant finder apps, all these different things, but but also in terms of brick and mortar restaurants, which, you know, it takes demand to, you know, to to fuel the the profit margins required to run a restaurant, you know. And so I think that's a real indication of how many pockets within different US cities um, of vegans that are just, you know, really growing rapidly. Yeah, and you know, from from my point of view here, I, I've mentioned it on the show before, and I think we talked about this as well. But Playa del Carmen, which is basically a resort town, and you wouldn't really expect many of the tourists that come in for for the week or two weeks in in a hotel or the cruise ships that come in to to be looking for this food. We've got like probably five or six vegan restaurants. There's this. 50 style burger joint that just opened three weeks ago that i still need to go check out that that's what i've been mentioned before i just i can never resist that but it, it's been amazing i can totally see that 30 by 30 happening i mean I, I don't see it as a very difficult goal to reach and obviously the the topic of of this show the the whole theme of the plant-based entrepreneur is the future is plant-based so um we're headed in the same direction here. Good. Well, let's make it happen. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. Let's wrap this up, Matt, with just another personal question, if you don't mind. I, I mean, we got a pretty good idea of what kind of person you are, but if you had to sum it up in a couple of sentences, what what drives you in, in what you do? What, what would it be? That is probably the hardest question that you've asked. You're um, welcome. I, I've been keeping it for last. I think that to those who much has been given, um, much should be expected. So it's not a very sexy answer, but I just feel compelled to give back. You know, um, I had an extraordinarily 
fortunate upbringing, you know, just a, a wonderful and supporting family and just a lot of people in my life, uh, early mentors and, and early colleagues that trusted in me and, and gave me opportunities. Um, and so as I've continued in my career, that, that sort of appreciation for all those people and, and opportunities has compounded and and I've only grown more and more dedicated to, to sort of returning the favor to the world. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's really what drives me, yeah, just sort of a sense of duty. That's actually a very good answer. Well, thank you. So we've gone pretty long with this one. Let's just um, end this and let's, let's tell everyone where they can find out more about you personally, about your project with Matt Fraser and your upcoming book if you can give out more information on that uh sure lightdrop.org like i said best place to to learn more about me and matt's company tolman.org t-u-l-l-m-a-n.org is uh best place to find out more about my background and uh and you can sign up for uh emails to get notifications about the book you won't get anything else i don't actually manage an email list um it's just People sign up, and I one day will will hopefully use those emails <laughs> to let them know of something really fun. But um, and, and if they want to get in contact with me, they can use that that contact form or or just email me. Um, you know, particularly for your audience, who I hope are a bunch of plant based entrepreneurs. You know, I, I'd love to continue the conversation. So. You know, my email is letter M at Tolman.org. But if someone's actually listened to us for over an hour and uh, and wants to email me directly, um, like I said, I, I am always open for a conversation and, and particularly interested in helping plant-based entrepreneurs. Matt, I really enjoyed this talk today. So did I. Thank and you. I, I think we have plenty of things that we, we could talk about even more. But for now, thank you for joining me. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Yeah. Have a great day. Okay. So that wraps up episode 27 of the Plant-Based Entrepreneur Show with Matt Talman. If you missed anything, if you were in a car or at the gym and you couldn't take notes, don't worry because we do it for you. So you can find everything that we talked about, all the websites, all the people, all the movies, products, all the links are in the show notes at theplantbasedentrepreneur.com forward slash show forward slash episode 027. Also, while you're visiting our website, make sure you grab your free copy of Plan-Based Business Ideas for the seven biggest opportunities in the plan-based space right now. And of course, if you have any questions, any thoughts or suggestions on that, or if you have anything that you'd like to put out for the show, you can always reach me directly by email on jerry at theplanbasedentrepreneur.com. So that's going to be all for today. I'll talk to you again next week, and until then, stay amazing and keep creating a plan-based future.